You know, I have found, and I am persuaded, that to create and sustain a movement of prayer in a church, we have to talk about something other than prayer first. I'm going to say that again because you need to feel that. To, to create and sustain a movement of prayer in a local church, sometimes you have to talk about something other than prayer first. For instance, number one, to create and sustain a movement of prayer, we have to remember that life is war. You see, we will not know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. You see, very few people realize that we are involved in a war greater than any imaginable World War III or nuclear holocaust. Very few people believe that Satan is a worse enemy than, than North Korea or radical Islam. Precious few people believe that the, that the casualties of this war don't merely lose an arm or, a, or an eye or even their own lives, but even their eternal souls forever in eternal hell. And yet when we feel that, we will begin to pray. Number two, to create and sustain a movement of prayer in a local church, we have to remember that God is absolutely sovereign over everything. You see, the sovereignty of God does not make our prayers meaningless. Rather, it gives the most meaning to our prayers. Why? Because the sovereignty of God is the guarantee that our prayers for the impossible are not in vain. And when we feel that, then we will begin to pray. Number three, to create and sustain a movement of prayer in a local church, we have to remember that all we are on our own by ourselves is nothing more than spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. You see, we are not self-replenishing streams on our own. Rather, on our own, all we are at best are leaky buckets. We are needy and desperate and bankrupt and powerless and helpless on our own. And when we feel that, we will begin to pray. And number four, to create and sustain a movement of prayer in a local church, we have to remember that God is radically, radically committed to the display of his own glory. That the unwavering passion of God and everything he does is to display forever his infinite worth and value forever for our ever-increasing enjoyment. You see, God has a plan to win worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, and yet prayer exists to alert everybody involved that the victory alone belongs to him. That's why we pray. And you see, those are the kinds of things to help us pray as we ought. And the reason why we're talking about prayer is because not only because it's in the Bible, but because this week we are doing what's called Prayer Week at Christ Community. And I want you to see that more significant than landing on the moon, winning a Nobel Prize, writing a book, curing cancer, saving people out of a burning building is to participate in the most loving and dangerous cause in the universe called the Great Commission through the instrumentality of prayer. And again, I, I make no claims to be a professional prayer. 
I, maybe I don't fit the classic mold of what's known as the prayer warrior. I mean, I'm not like Martin Luther and George Mueller, men who are famous for spending hours on their knees, and yet nevertheless, more and more, I have felt the weight of the reality that supernatural work requires supernatural power. More and more, I am persuaded that the Christian life is not merely difficult, it is impossible. More and more, I am convinced that apart from Christ, all we are on our own is nothing more than spiritual paraplegics. The longer that I have been a Christian, I have not felt more sufficient and strong to do what God commands, but more weak and more needy and more vulnerable. Which makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, that's exactly what Christ said in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing that's exactly what he said to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That's exactly what, what he said. And so prayer, rookie though I may be, more than ever, I feel the urgent necessity in, and indispensability of prayer because all prayer is, is to despair in our worthless resources to live the Christian life and to cast ourselves upon Christ for his endless ones. And so this morning I finished a two-part series, a mini-series on prayer, both the theology of what prayer is and the methodology of how prayer works. And I am persuaded that if we are, that if we commit ourselves to prayer, both individually and corporately as a church, we will begin to see greater, and I would argue, global impact even from this ministry right here in Arlington. Because that's what we want, isn't it? We, we are not merely interested in perpetuating our own little thing here. No, we exist to prize and portray and proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. What we want to be is a launch site for global ministry. And therefore, we've got to pray. We've got to pray big time. We've got to pray with urgent passion for the impossible. And so here we go. This morning, I want you to see, and it's in your notes if you have them, I want you to see 10 biblical descriptions of what prayer is. 10 descriptions of what prayer is that you must know so that you can pray in a way that makes an impact for eternity. That's where we're going. 10 descriptions of what prayer is so that you can pray in a way that makes an impact for eternity. We saw five of these last week. We'll review those and then we'll finish with the final five. First, we saw last week, a definition of prayer. We saw a definition of prayer and we said that prayer, get this now, is the sweet fusion and union between God's glorification and your satisfaction. In other words, prayer is where you seek sovereign power from God by which he is glorified at supreme pleasure in God by which you are satisfied. In other words, you get the pleasure, you get the power, he gets the praise, everybody wins. That's what prayer is. Second, we saw the purpose of prayer. The purpose, design, the goal, the aim of prayer. And we saw from the Bible that my definition of prayer comes from the Bible. Christ said in John 14 that the purpose of prayer, get this, is that the Father would be glorified in the Son. The deepest motive in God for why he answers prayer is that he would be put on display for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. And that's not new to us. We know that. And yet, 
In John chapter 16, Christ pulls a bait and switch and he says that the purpose of prayer is the fulfillment of our highest joy. And we, last week we asked the question, which is it? Is prayer for the glory of God or is it for the fullness of our joy? And the answer is a profound and universe splitting. Yes, it's not either or, it's both and. You see, God calls us to live for our deepest joy and for the glory of God and how both of those things merge together is through the instrumentality of prayer. Third, we saw We talked about prayer and the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God and prayer. And we saw that mysterious though it may be, prayer and the sovereignty of God are not incompatible. You can have a universe in which God predestines everything and have the urgency to pray because prayer is the means through which God accomplishes everything that he predestined. You see, prayer doesn't change God's plan. Prayer doesn't change what God has predestined. Rather, God accomplishes what he has predestined through the prayers of his people. Fourth, last week we saw the blood and guts honesty of prayer. The blood and guts honesty of prayer. And we saw that what God is after in your prayer life is not merely the quantity of your words, but the authenticity of your words the urgency of your words, the intentionality of your words. In other words, God wants you to pray like he's actually there and he's real and he's a person and he's listening and he is a father and he is a treasure of infinite worth and value. God wants you to know that you don't always have to pray according to strict rules of formality, that there are times when it is right and appropriate to be raw and honest, brutally honest with everything that's going on in your soul, and that is profoundly liberating for us. And then number five, we saw the persistence of prayer. And we saw that God is not looking for people to be polite in prayer, to be persistent in prayer, relentless, obsessive, maybe even irritating persistence. Be asking, be seeking, be knocking. God wants us to be tenacious in prayer, to be ferocious in prayer as we plead with him to do the impossible. That's last week. Now for the final five. Number six, the sixth biblical description of prayer. Number six, the duration of prayer. The duration of prayer, because I think you'll find it very, very interesting that your attention span has become a multi-million dollar industry, billion dollar industry. And what I mean is there are marketing executives and business strategists all over the world scheming right now as we speak to how to get your attention on a four-inch plasma screen every single spare moment of your day. And again, I'm not not knocking smartphones. I'm just saying that the technological magic wand in your pocket has both its pluses and its minuses. What I'm saying is that the constant influx of instant information is the proverbial tree of knowledge in the 21st century that has both its thrilling benefits, also, however, its unfortunate drawbacks. See, all I'm saying is that your attention span is of great concern to the living God. Because you see, long before the touchscreen, 
long before the printing press, long before cave drawings, God has always been profoundly concerned with your attention span and your ability to focus. And you see, when it comes to prayer, that unbelievable act of worship where a finite, created, temporal human being approaches the God who has more power than 10,000 neutron bombs. When it comes to prayer, God is extremely concerned with the duration, with the frequency, and the continuity of your prayers. For instance, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, you know it well. Adam just read these verses, and I want you to catch Paul's vibe for how often it is that we should pray. Listen to what he says here. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and with supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now that's very interesting to me. Instead of being anxious, in fact, the exact opposite of that is in everything, in everything, let your requests be made known to God. In everything. Not just in some crisis. Not just in some disaster. No, pray about Everything, every situation, every circumstance, every scenario, there you are on the phone, as it were, with the sovereign God of the universe who governs everything that comes to pass. And you might be thinking, hold on a second, it just, it kind of sounds like that the Bible expects me to pray about everything. And that's, a, that's exactly right. That's exactly what it does. Or at the very least, the Bible expects you to pray about everything that makes you fearful or anxious or worried or overwhelmed or crushed or despairing or worried. Be anxious for nothing, he says, but in everything, in everything, let your request be made known to God. And so here, here's the question for you. If you prayed about every single thing throughout the day that made you anxious fearful, nervous, angry, or insecure, how often would you pray? Maybe the better question is, if you prayed throughout the day about every single thing that made you anxious, fearful, nervous, angry, or insecure, how radically would your lives begin to change? How much more joyful would you be? How much more stable would you be? How much more secure would you be? How much more satisfied would you be? That is the question. Because I'll just tell you, no one, and if you're one of these people, sorry, but no one likes the guy who's always walking around with his Bluetooth headset, just walking and talking everywhere he goes. No one likes that guy. But if you prayed like that, if you prayed like that with the Bluetooth headset always on in prayer, as it were, God would grant you supernatural peace that would simply defy rational explanation. See, I'm going to say something that's going to sting a little bit. And I count myself in this crowd. But you see, it's very possible that our, we, our failure to impact the world for Jesus Christ is because we complain just like everybody else. We worry just like everybody else. We panic 
just like everybody else. We are anxious and fearful as if there isn't a sovereign king govern everything that comes to pass. And yet there is one, there is one, and he wants us to know that we can cast our cares upon him. That he calls us to do that. Here's another text, Colossians 4.2. And again, you know this well, Colossians 4.2. Listen for the duration and the frequency of our prayer. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. That's literally a present tense command in the Greek. Be devoting yourselves. Never close, open seven days a week. Be devoting yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And that's the question. How does this happen? What does this mean? How do you be devoted to prayer? If you have a life and responsibilities, how is this even possible? Well, think about it this way. If you were a devoted musician, or if you were a devoted husband, that does not mean that the only thing you only ever do is play music or spend time with your wife. But what it does mean is that all of your priorities are radically oriented to give those things a place of unrivaled supremacy. See, the Bible's expectation is not that the only thing you always ever do is pray, but that you do all things in relation to prayer that you do all things in connection to prayer, that you do all things in an atmosphere of prayer, that you do all things in a spirit of prayer, needy and dependent and desperate, crying out for help. And then, of course, there's 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, when Paul says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. It's just two words in the Greek, just two small, tiny, little Greek words. And yet in those two Greek words are gargantuan significance. In those two Greek words literally is the fulfillment of your highest joy. Because think about it, think about it. The most basic goals of the Christian life are unquestionably beyond our reach. God has called us to labor for that which is his alone to give, and therefore, Paul says, pray without ever, ever, ever ceasing. And that seems impossible, right? That, that seems impossible to have that kind of attitude of ongoing, unbroken prayer. It feels impossible until, that is, we feel the desperation of a bombing raid or the thrill of a new strategic offensive for the gospel. It feels impossible until we feel the despair of our worthless resources to live the Christian life. It feels impossible until we feel the weight of eternal souls hanging over the open, gaping mouth of eternal hell without the gospel of Jesus Christ. And until we feel those things, we will not pray with the kind of longevity and the kind of urgency we need to live the war that is the Christian life. So my question is this, during the day, in the gaps, in the transitions, in the empty spaces of your life, who or what has your attention? Do you have compulsive social media habits that's killing and corroding, urgent, needy, persistent prayer throughout the day? 
The question is, do you have a stubborn, tenacious, obstinate struggle in your life that just you can never seem to conquer and just never seems to go away? Because if you have something like that, maybe, just maybe, God is saying something about how often and how urgently you need to pray. That's six. Six descriptions of prayer, which brings us to the seventh biblical description of prayer. Number seven, the components of prayer. The components of prayer. In other words, all I want to do is ask the question, what should you pray? Well, what kinds of things should fill your prayer time? What are the kinds of prayers that you should and must and could and have to incorporate into your prayer time? What are the kinds of prayers modeled for us into the pages of Holy Scripture that we are to integrate into our prayer lives? And there are many, and there is a list of them in your notes there if you've got them. But first, there are prayers of lament. Prayers of lament that should be a part of our prayer life. And this is almost all but forgotten in our day, but prayers of lament, that is prayers of pain, heartbreak, and spiritual paralysis. I think it's interesting that, that God has supplied in his word the very, prayer, pr- very prayers to pray, pray when we are overwhelmed and needy and pushed beyond our means. And depending on how you count them, out of the 150 prayers recorded in the Psalms, 60 of them are prayers of lament and expressions of grief, which is exactly what the writer was doing in Psalm 42, verse 6, when he says, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. That's exactly what what, what David was doing in Psalm 143, when he said, Oh God, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is bowed down within me. You see, these are the kinds of prayers you pray when prayer is the last thing you feel like doing. You just push the prayer list aside and you come to God needy and bankrupt and empty and unrefined and urgent and blood and guts, honest, pouring your soul out to him. The question is, do you come to God like that? Because you can, and you should, and you must. But then there are imprecatory prayers. There are imprecatory prayers, and what are those? Well, what those are, those are prayers for deliverance from your enemies, and those are prayers of destruction of your enemies. And To be totally honest, many today in the American church feel like these prayers have no business being prayed by those who belong to Christ. That there's no way to be a Christian and pray for deliverance from your enemies or for the destruction of your enemies to which I respectfully disagree. See, these are not self-righteous prayers coming from a snot-nosed brat with first-world problems. No, these are raw, gut-wrenching prayers that unfortunately must be prayed in a world filled with absolute evil. You you pray for Kim Jong-un of North Korea. You pray for terrorists. You pray for sex traffickers. You pray for them, and you can pray something like this. Oh, God, stop them, save them, or if it brings you glory, wipe them off the face of the planet. That's not incompatible with love. That's not self-righteous so long as you remember that you also deserve hell just like they do. And that no thanks to you, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. See, that's not not turning the other cheek. 
You know, we've had it so easy here in this Disneyland of Christianity with very little persecution, very little social ostracism. The prayers like this just feel, this make very little sense to us, but I have the feeling that sooner rather than later, prayers like this are going to come in real handy real soon. And of course, there are prayers of confession. Prayers of confession, or as I like to call them, emptying the sewer of your souls. In other words, this is just coming clean before the God who already knows the secrets of the heart and relinquishing all of the idols and the lovers and the discount saviors that you have trusted and treasured more than God himself. And we need to be absolutely clear here that when you confess your sin, you are not earning your forgiveness. Okay, that this is not penance. God does not need you to punish yourself as a way to atone for your own sins because if you belong to Christ, he has already been punished for your sins. He has already atoned for your own sins. No, what confession is, is the restoration of a relationship. What this is, is getting your sin out of the way and coming home to God. And of course, there are prayers of thanksgiving. Prayers of thanksgiving, which means you celebrate the achievements of Christ and the kindnesses of God. You just rehearse and you recount everything that Christ accomplished for you with his death in your place. You just rehearse and recount. You take inventory of the kindness, the sovereign kindnesses of God in your life. You do what Psalm 103 models for us. Listen, listen to what David says. This is This is profound. He says, bless Yahweh, O my soul. Preaching to his own soul. Bless Yahweh and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. He's just grabbing his heart by the throat and forcing him to the text. Look at what this says about who God is. So what are the benefits that God performs? Well, he lists them who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, eventually, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Yahweh performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him as far as the east is from the west which is an infinite distance so far he has removed our transgressions from us that is how you give thanks and if you did that every single day of your life think about how your lives would begin to change if you just paused and you forced yourself to give thanks like that every single day, all of a sudden the grumbling would cease, the eye-rolling would stop, the complaining would dry up, the slander and gossip would disappear, and all the self-righteous beneath, and which produces all those things, would shrivel up and it would die. But then, of course, we can't forget praise. We should praise God. We must praise God. We get to praise God, which is to prize and proclaim the perfections of God. All this is is you declaring the perfections of God back to God. And then, of course, there are prayers of petition, which I call pleading with God to do the impossible. 
See that all those kinds of things you should and must incorporate into your prayer life, which is really profound to me. It's striking to me that God has given us in his word the very kinds of prayers that we get to pray back to him. You see, God wants you to pray. And he has not only supplied in his word the kinds of prayers to pray, but also the very words to pray, which brings me to the eighth biblical description. Number eight, the content of prayer. The content of prayer. And and what I mean is, the Bible gives you the total freedom to make up the script of your own prayer life. In other words, you can pray with your own words, drawn from the furnace of your own soul. You can journal, you can write out, you can do extemporaneous prayer, just just making it up as you go with your own words. You can totally do that, total freedom to do that. But you can also, also, you can take the very words of God from the pages of Scripture and you can use these as your prayer back to God. See, you can and you should make the scriptures or at least the language of your scriptures your language back to God because you see, we will only pray well if we are immersed in scripture well. You see, we learn our prayer vocabulary the same way children learn their vocabulary and we learn to speak to God by learning the way that he speaks to us in his word and I believe that's the lesson that Paul has for us in Ephesians chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 6, you remember that passage, the great armor of God passage, where Paul lists the spiritual weapons of mass destruction needed to win the war of the Christian life. And I want you to notice something really striking, really thrilling in chapter 6, verse 18, that will literally change your prayer life. At least I hope it will. Because you see, without a break, without a pause, Without a transition in that text, listen very carefully what Paul does. Listen very carefully for the inseparable relationship between the word of God and praying to God. Listen very carefully. In our English Bibles, there's a period. There's no period here in the Greek. Listen very carefully. Starting in verse 17, Paul says, and take up the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, through all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit. Did you catch it? Did you see the unbreakable relationship between the Word of God and praying to God? The connection is this. The Word of God is a weapon. And where you wield the weapon of the word is through all prayer and petition at all times, praying in the spirit. In other words, take the sword, pray. Take the word, pray. Think about it like this. The word of God is the all-powerful instrument to accomplish the purposes of God. Agree? And yet when you do this, when you take the word of God and you use it back to God as your prayers, you are taking the word of God, which expresses the desires of God, which contain the power of God to accomplish the purposes of God for the very glory of God. In other words, if you didn't get that, because that was a really long sentence, what I mean is prayer is the power that wields the weapon of the word. Prayer is the power that wields the weapon of the word. For instance, 
When you pray for lost people, how do you pray for them? When you pray for blind, dead, and damned sinners, how do you pray for them? Because you can make up the script on your own. You can draw the words from the furnace of your own soul, or you can take the scriptures and use those as your prayer also, for instance. For praying, when praying for lost people, you can use Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27 as your prayer. And you can pray, oh God, take out of them a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Put your spirit within them and cause them to walk in your statutes and they would be careful to observe all your ordinances. You can pray 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Oh God, open their eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You can pray those prayers back to God because does God want to do those things? He does. You pray the desires of God back to God for the glory of God. Or when you wake up in the morning and your soul is frigid and cold and the last thing you want to do is seek the living God, then you just turn to Psalm 90 verse 14 which says, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Men, struggle with your eyes and where they go. Turn to Psalm 119, verse 37, and pray back to God. God, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Tempted to find your deepest satisfaction in what you own or what you look like, then, then you pray Psalm 63, verse 1, back to God. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. One more. How do you pray for friends or family members who claim to be believers, but they show, they show no visible demonstrated fruit in your lives? What do you pray for them? You, you turn to Colossians 1, 9 through 12, and you pray the explosive sanctification prayer of the Apostle Paul for them. God, I pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of your will, which means to be filled with the word, and, and that they would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in every pleasing thing, that they would bear fruit in every good work and they would increase in the knowledge of you, that they would be strengthened with all power according to the might of your glory for all endurance and patience with joy. They would give thanks to you. I pray that for them. Bear fruit in their lives. Do you see? You pray you take the word praying, making it the content of your prayers because prayer is the power that wields the weapon of the word. Which brings us to the ninth description of prayer. The ninth description of prayer, number nine, the amen of prayer. The amen of prayer, which I'm basically gonna skip, but I will say this one thing. I don't believe in skipping points. I gotta say something. It was, it's on my notes. I gotta say something. And, and, and what's, what's the thing about when we say amen is that it's become just this formality for us. Right? We, we, don't, we don't contemplate why we say it. And of course, we say amen at the end of our prayers because we see people in Scripture say amen at the end of our prayers, at the end of their prayers. But, but you see, when we say amen at the end of a prayer, do you realize what it is that you're doing? See, this is not some push of the button of a vending machine that gets us a little treat that tickles our fancy. 
to say amen is not another way of putting a period at the end of your sentence so that everybody knows that you're praying. No, when you say in the name of Christ, amen, what you're doing in that moment is making a theological statement. When you say that, when you say in the name of Christ, amen, it means that you know exactly what it is that you are banking on to get your prayers answered, namely the achievements and the merits and the glory of Jesus Christ himself. So the next time you say amen, you need to slow way down, you need to pause and remember what you are saying. It means that what you are trusting in in that moment to get your prayers answered is everything God has promised in Christ on the base who is our high priest, on the basis of whose merits we know that God hears us and that he will give us what we need. Which brings us finally to the 10th description of prayer. The 10th description, number 10, a methodology of prayer. A methodology of prayer. In other words, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna end my sermon giving you a simple methodology of of how to pray. Of how to pray. Of how to actually go before the Lord and, and pray and it won't be long and it won't be complicated and some of you won't even need it because you have your own methodology. That's totally fine. This is not the 10 commandments. This is not law. You don't have to use this. But either way, whether you use this or some form of this or your own methodology, all I want for us is that God would work in our midst to unleash a movement of prayer that we have never seen in this church. That we would pray with urgent passion for the impossible. But before I give you this methodology, I, I want to say something to you that's, that's very, very important. And it's this. The most important thing that I have to say about prayer is not actually about prayer. Rather, the most important thing that I have to say about prayer is actually what produces and creates the desires and passions for prayer. Because that's oftentimes what we're missing, isn't it? Because anyone can make a prayer list, that's easy. Anyone can make a schedule, that's simple. Anyone can design a methodology, that's easy for anyone to do. But you see, the hardest thing about prayer is that so oftentimes we lack the desires and the urgency and the passion to pray as we ought to pray. In other words, we we don't pray not because we don't have time, but because we do. You see, we make time for what we value. You see, we don't pray oftentimes because it is excruciatingly boring, right? And yet there is a solution for that. There is a biblical cure for passionless, frigid, agonizing prayer. Here it is. Here is the cure, the guaranteed cure. Not that it's going to be easy, but here is the guaranteed cure for passionless, frigid, agonizing prayer. Here it is. The secret to pleasurable, passionate, and persistent prayer is meditation upon who God is from the pages of Scripture. That's the cure. That's the solution. The secret 
The way to overcome dry, brutal, boring, agonizing times in prayer where your mind is wandering all over the place, doing everything but pray, is profound meditation upon who God is from the pages of Scripture. And, 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 and so if you want to pray, and I know you do, the passion to pray is produced by long, long meditation upon who Jesus Christ is from the pages of scripture. And what is meditation? It's not the Eastern mysticism thing, whatever that is. Meditation is taking your Bible, opening to the text, and it's like observing the beauty of a sunset or savoring a meal or warming your hands by a fire as opposed to skimming a text message. Meditation is intense, rigorous thinking about the text of scripture where you savor the texture, you enjoy the seasoning, you cherish the flavor, reading it again and again and again and again until it becomes a part of you, until your soul is awakened to the beauty of truth contained on the page. To be able to be impacted by the Bible, you need to read the Bible the way the Bible wants you to read the Bible, which is slow and steady wins the race. In other words, reading your Bible is a crockpot meal. The Puritan Thomas Watson nailed it when he said this. The reason why our prayers are cold is because they are not first warmed by the fires of meditation. Listen to how George Mueller articulated the discovery in, in his life. You remember George Mueller, the pastor in the 1800s who's probably most famous for the orphanages, the many orphanages that he started, famous for his prayer life. And we would look at him as sort of like the quintessential prayer guy that we would want to model our lives after. We just assume, well, no one can do that. And, 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 but he was a pastor and he had struggles and busyness just like everybody else. And, and listen to his life, listen to the way he puts his life-changing discovery of how meditation leads to pleasurable, passionate prayer. Okay, this, this, was, this, this is his account before he discovered meditation. He said, formerly when I began to rose in those days, before I discovered the secret, I began to pray as soon as possible. In other words, he'd roll out of bed, start to pray. And generally, I spent all my time till breakfast in prayer. But what was the result of those times? I often suffered much from wandering of mind for the first 10 minutes or the first quarter of an hour or even a full half an hour. George Mueller. It sounds familiar, right? Wandering of mind, deadness of heart, coldness in affection. But then George Mueller made the great discovery about prayer, namely that it needs to be, it has to be fueled by the power of Scripture first. Listen to what he says. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I, I ought to attend every day, get this, was to have my soul made happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. The first thing I did, after having asked a few words of the Lord's blessing upon his precious word, the first thing I began to do was to meditate on the word of God, searching, as it were, into every verse to get blessing out of it. 
not for the sake of public ministry of the word, not for the preaching of the word, but for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. The result I have found to be almost invariably is this, listen carefully, that after a few minutes of meditation, after meditating on the text, my soul was suddenly led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication so that I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer directly, but to meditation first. And yet, he says, it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. That's the secret. That's the secret. Do you see? Meditating on the scriptures is the fuel that creates the passion to worship and pray in the soul. So when you wake up in the morning and every cinder in your soul feels cold, you crawl to the word of God and you open up the text and you plead with God to open your eyes and you read and you take a verse at a time and you go slow and steady and you warm your hands by the fire of the text, reading it again and again and again. And what you will begin to see is that God will take his word and ignite the cold ashes of your soul into the fires of affection for God and then then you will pray. That is the most important thing I have to say about prayer. Now, for the methodology. This is going to be fast. And this is not going to be anything you haven't already done at some time in your life. But here is a way for you to pray 10 minutes a day. Just 10 minutes a day. You can work your way up over time. 10 minutes a day, which if you did that, your lives would begin to change. First, number one, confess. Confess, you, after you spend some time meditating on, your wor- on God's word, you confess, you take two minutes and you empty the sewer of your souls and you just confess every thought and feeling and word and action and idol that flowed from a heart of unbelief. And if you need help to know what to pray, turn to Psalm 51 and make that the content of your confession. Number two, remember. Remember, the Bible calls you to remember, which means the Bible calls you to give thanks. Take two minutes and recite and remember everything that Christ accomplished with his death. Spend time thanking Christ for all the salvation blessings that he purchased for you with his death in your place. And if you need help with the words to speak, turn to Romans chapter 5 verses 8 through 12 and make that the content of your remembrance. Make that the content of your thanksgiving. Number three, declare. Declare the scriptures command you to praise That's good for our souls to praise. Take two minutes and declare back to God all of the perfections that make him who he is. And if you don't know what to praise him for, turn to Isaiah chapter 40, turn to Psalm 103, make that the content of your praise. Or, or you could do this, for every letter of the alphabet, each letter stands for a perfection attribute of God and you pray that back to God. I've got a list. Oh God, I praise you. And we're going to do it right now. God, I praise you that you are A, all-knowing. That you are B, you are beautiful. 
C, you are a consuming fire. D, you are a deliverer. E, you are eternal. F, you are faithful. G, you are gracious. H, you are holy. I, you are infinite. J, you are just. K, you are kind. L, you are loving. M, you are merciful. N, you are never beginning. Some of these will be a stretch. O, you are omnipresent. P, you are powerful. Q, you are quick to show mercy. R, you are righteous. S, you are sovereignty. You are a trinity. You, you are unchanging. V, you are victorious. W, you are wise. X, you are Xerophilus. You can look that up later. Y, you are Yahweh. Z, you are zealous for your own glory. Do you see? And then fourth and finally, you must plead. You must plead, you take two minutes and you just unload on God all the things that burden your soul. And you can split this up into five categories. Pray for your own soul. Pray for family and friends. Plead for your church. Plead for missionaries. Plead for the nations. That's it, 10 minutes. You can do that in 10 minutes. And inevitably, you won't stay at 10 minutes for long. Not that the time is the point, but there's no way. There's no way you can contain this kind of prayer life. And you can work your way up over time. So the question is, if you did that 10 minutes a day on your knees before King Jesus, pleading with him in prayer, my question is, do you think your lives would begin to change? Maybe the better question is, would your lives ever be the same again? You see, we pray, and I close with this, we pray not merely because prayer is just for our own personal devotional delight. We don't just pray just because that's simply what Christians do. Rather, we pray because prayer is the God-ordained instrument through which God unfolds the plan he predestined. We pray because it is the God-ordained instrument that helps us make an impact for eternity. And when that grips us, then and only then will we begin to pray. Speaking of prayer, let's do that one more time together. Oh Lord, this was a lot. A lot to think through, a lot to preach. We confess mental exhaustion, fatigue. Oh Lord, many of us, we came in here fatigued this morning. Lord, we come to you a needy people. We come to you a tired people. We come to you a weary people. We come to you confessing that we are just people. We are just human. And so, Lord, we need your sufficiency. We need your grace. We need your life-transforming power in our lives, O oh Lord. And so I ask, O oh Lord, that you would pour out upon us a spirit of neediness, O oh Lord, that you would help us with profound, unbelievable objectivity that sees us, that sees ourselves for who we really are, namely as spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. I pray that we would take seriously your word, O oh Christ, that apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us, Lord, help us to be a church that prays with urgent passion for the impossible, always and only for the glory of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.